0: recovery elevator episode 123
1: now that i have this piece i really can only accept this one day of being sober i can't plan on tomorrow and future tripping is huge don't future trip think about the day you're in
0: welcome to the recovery elevator podcast my name is paul churchill thank you so much for joining us According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 1,010 days. On today's podcast, we've got Mary. She's from Louisiana. She raises puppies and talks about how she accidentally got sober. Okay, let's get started. I'd like to talk to you guys today about the drunkest cities in America. I came across this article on the USA Today app and thought I'd share it with you. And before I read the drunkest city in America, I know every one of you guys out there is thinking, my city is the drunkest city in America. And when I say the drunkest city and it's not yours, I know you're going to say, there's not a chance that people drink more outside of my city. That's kind of the common reaction. A lot of times when I do these podcast interviews, it's like, yeah, well, people just, they they, they just drink a lot in my city. That's that's all there is to do. So the consensus is, is people drink a lot in every city, but Here it is. Well, bottoms up, Green Bay, Wisconsin. You have another trophy to put in the case. 24-7 Wall Street, a Delaware-based financial news and opinion corporation, just rated Green Bay as the drunkest city in America. The excessive drinking rate among adults in Green Bay is the highest of any metro area in the country. Oh, metro area. Bozeman, Montana, we could still be number one. This is with metro areas. Yeah, we still got it. According to a study, the group analyzed self reported data from the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation at the University of Wisconsin. The data was collected across nearly 400 metro areas. Green Bay's number one ranking shows a two spot jump from last year's drunkest city, surpassing former number one Appleton, Wisconsin, which fell to third place. Sorry about that, Appleton. The study notes Green Bay has 138 bars, and more than 26% of adult residents regularly drink to excess or binge drink. The national average is 18%. Binge drinking is defined by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as men consuming five or more alcoholic drinks in less than two hours and women consuming four or more alcoholic drinks in less than two hours. The findings show a trend in Wisconsin overall. It's the second year the state has beat out all other states for the most spots on the list. Of the 20th drunkest cities in the country, 10 are Wisconsin cities. Wow. We've got Green Bay, number 1, Eau Claire, number 2, Appleton, number 3, Madison, number 4, Oshkosh, awesome name for a town, number 6, Wausau, number 9, La Crosse, close to La Croix, number 10, Fond du Lac, number 12, Sheboygan, number 15, and Milwaukee, raining out the top 20. I do apologize if I mispronounce your city's name. That is unfamiliar territory for me. The study also found cities with heavy drinking tend to have better educated, higher earning, and healthier populations than cities with the lowest excessive drinking rates. In my opinion, this could be due to disposable income. Drinking ain't cheap. Some might argue being known as the drunk city is hardly anything to celebrate, and in some respects, they're totally right. The CDC reports binge drinkers are 14 times more likely to be involved in alcohol-impaired driving. That in mind... Green Bay is one of only five metro areas nationwide where more than half of all its deadly car crashes involve alcohol. Nationwide, it's about one-third of all lethal car crashes involve alcohol, or around 33,000 each year. Here are some fast facts that the article mentions as well. Nationwide, there are about 1.3 bars for every 10,000 people. In 15 of the 20th heaviest drinking cities, the concentration of bars is at least double the national ratio. In 13 of the 20th heavy drinking cities, the median age is lower than the 37.8 national median. So here is the top 20 drunkest cities in America. We got Green Bay number one, Eau Claire number two, Appleton number three, Madison number four. Those are all Wisconsin cities, by the way. Then we've got Fargo, North Dakota, number five, Oshkosh, Nina, Wisconsin, number six, Missoula, Montana, number seven, Grand Forks, North Dakota, number eight. Wausau, Wisconsin, number nine. La Crosse, Wisconsin. Mankato, North Mankato, Minnesota, number 11. Fond du Lac, number 12. Iowa City, Iowa, number 13. Dubuque, Iowa, number 14. Sheboygan, Wisconsin, number 15. Waterfront, Fort Drum, New York. Lincoln, Nebraska, number 17. 18. We've got Fairbanks, Alaska, number 19. Ames, Iowa, number 20. Milwaukee, Washkyshek, Wessalia, whatever, Wisconsin. And that's it. That's our top 20. Nice job, guys. Or not nice job at all. One thing that I notice in this list is most of these cities are above the Sun Belt and can have devastating winters. Like I mentioned earlier, everyone thinks their city or geographical location has a high consumption of alcohol. I'm sure everyone is surprised their city is not on the list. I know I was personally surprised to find Missoula on the list and Bozeman wasn't. But then I found out that Missoula is a metropolitan area and Bozeman isn't. In that same article was a link to millennials and drinking, and I'm going to talk about that after the interview. But first, let's hear from Café RE, and then we'll hear from Mary. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Mary, how are you?
1: Hi, I'm good. Thank you.
0: Yeah, perfect. Thanks for joining us. Mary, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober?
1: I have been sober for just over three years. My sobriety date is May 5th of 2014.
0: 2014 is a great year to get sober. That's my year as well. <laughs> and give listeners, I know that is. Yeah. And give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, or do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun?
1: Yes. I am from Lafayette, Louisiana, and I'm 49 years old. I'm married. My husband and I have five children between us. Three are grown, and two are still at home. For fun, I run bike i cook i'm a puppy raiser right now for canine companions for independence and getting to know my sober songs has been one of the most interesting and pretty fun things that i've done in a long time i'm actually back in college again so Sweet. i'm a college student i know yeah, you get a I'm, spring uh, break awesome. that's awesome yeah it's true i love it and i make really good grades <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love helping people, and to me, being of service is actually, I hate to say, fun. It's just really fulfilling. I enjoy that.
0: Oh, absolutely. I agree 100% with that. And you said something I didn't quite hear. Was this, You said getting to know your sober self or getting to know your sober sons?
1: Getting to know my sober self. Okay. Um, Because <laughs> I started drinking way back when I had my first drink when I was seven years old. Yikes. And I I know, I know. Irish Catholic family. (laughs) It (laughs) happens. (laughs) And apparently I was genetically predisposed because I really liked it. I remember loving it even back then. So, yeah, I really haven't known my sober self for the majority of my life.
0: I remember taking communion when I was raised Episcopalian. And I remember taking a big swig mm-hmm. of the wine, and this is you know I'm like in single digits, I'm like eight, nine, ten. Take a big swig of wine and then just let it sit in my mouth. I go back and sit in the chair, the the you know, the whatever those are called, and uh it just like let it be you know, absorbed through my mouth and I could actually feel a tiny buzz. Yeah, so I, when you said my first drink was yeah. seven, eight, or nine, you could i probably say I drank alcoholically, yeah. And I was like maybe five. Just kidding. I don't want to story top you there, but <laughs> I'm just kidding.
1: I get that. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Church line is
0: dead. yeah, yeah. that's the real stuff. Listeners, Mary reached out to me with an amazing email last podcast episode or a couple ago. Was that alcohol does not foster intelligence at all? And Mary sent me this amazing email. Something about you know driving a car, you know doing it once while intoxicated, and then you know did it once successfully. Let's uh, go ahead and try it again. But instead of me replicating the story, let's go ahead and hear it from you, Mary
1: okay yeah I was 13 I didn't have a driver's license I was babysitting and I had the idea it would be fun to invite my friend over and we started drinking tequila I it was you know I instigated the whole thing I remember it and so we're drinking tequila and there's Big long Cadillac outside. Wait, wait, is said, it hey, tequila
0: know, that's not yours? It's like from the people's house you're babysitting at, right?
1: Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah it's under the sink.
0: That's a given. <laughs> that's a given.
1: Oh, yeah. And the baby was sound asleep. Not to try to make this sound any better because the whole thing is absolutely horrible. And thankfully, I've made a move.
2: But
0: yeah, no, you're um, sounding like an season, angel already. Yeah. <laughs> from the start.
2: Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so we drink tequila. We get this
1: big Cadillac. I'm driving. We go to my friend's house, visit. Hey, we're drinking and driving and supposed to be babysitting. Go home, you know, back to the house where I'm babysitting. And then a little while later, I said, let's just go right back over there. So we did. And then when I was leaving, I backed out into their ditch. And then I hit a palm tree with this huge Cadillac. So cops showed up. It was, it was horrible. And then the cops brought me home to my mom and my mom was an alcoholic. And so she was drunk, you know, receiving me at the door with these cops and she's not doing so well. Hmm. It was horrible. Yeah. And she took my makeup away the next day for church and gave it back. I know. I know. we really never talked about it again, except I did have to pay for all the damage to the car, which took me a few years. Yeah, just because my mom didn't have the money to to bail me out of that situation. But, yeah, it was just full of red flags, and no one heeded them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mary, it's your defense, when you're drinking and driving, ditches are everywhere. And in the South... <laughs> Palm trees are like weeds. I've, I've been there before, and they're everywhere. So yeah. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't your fault. There was just a ditch. Like I Thank said, they're you. everywhere. And a palm tree just in the middle of the road. So I'm sure that yeah. couldn't have been it. You know, you're driving a boat age 13. That's tough to do. So I wouldn't beat yourself up too much.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> that is a great story. And like you mentioned, there's a couple red flags there at age 13. And I think Ooh. if all of us you look back... And give an honest reflection of our past, the red flags were there a long time before we make the decision to quit drinking yeah and let's yeah. let's 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 dive into your drinking a little bit, like how much did you use to drink, describe your drinking habits, and did you ever put rules in a place to monitor like you're only drinking you know after five p m things like yeah. that
1: Oh, totally. I drank every day and most of the time it was only beer unless we were um, out in the evenings and it was whiskey and wine and but mostly beer I thought that was the easiest thing no one could tell if it was your first beer or your two beer it was just a bottle of beer walking around the house Mm -hmm. and I did try to regulate at first I tried not to drink before five o'clock in the evening and then the rule there was unless it was an extremely difficult day and I was home for the evening with kids home from school safely. And then at night, I got to where I didn't sleep well because my husband didn't sleep well. So I would wake up unable to go back to sleep and I would have a drink and then, or beer or whatever. And then if I went back to sleep and woke up again, which was pretty typical, So, yeah. So my window of not drinking was shrinking by the end. By the end, I was saying, well, let's not drink before five in the evening and then we'll stop at like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. tops because I would have to wake up at 530 to be a mom. And, you know, so, yeah, it was kind of scary at the end. I definitely felt like I was losing control.
0: And looking back, so you got you got sober at age 49, and let's ignore the, the fiasco at age 13. When did you start to see signs that perhaps you, you weren't drinking normally?
1: Well, I always question myself. I actually did stop when I was 46 because I'm 49 now, but... Yeah, when we would go out, I just had to have a drink immediately. And then as soon as that one was delivered to me, I was thinking about the next one. I never, never, I still don't understand people who leave their drinks half finished on the table. Like that's, somebody told me recently, that's alcohol abuse.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, that definitely is alcohol abuse. Yeah, it's,
1: yeah, it's like 12 dollars twelve ninety
0: nine beer night and you're going to leave half of a beer in there. It makes no yeah. sense.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And then too, I just, I always had to have something on board. Like if I were going to parents' night at my kid's school, I would have to drink a beer before I walked out. I just, you know, I would tell myself, lie to myself, oh, it's social anxiety. No, it's not. It was alcoholism and I needed something. And that's just all there is to it. So yeah, there were all these red flags along the way that I just discounted and downplayed.
0: Now, did you see any flags in your 20s and 30s, or was it mostly in your 40s?
1: It got worse in my 40s. I think in my 20s and 30s, I drank a lot, but I do live in South Louisiana, and it's a cultural thing here. There's a lot of parties, a lot of partying. There's Mardi Gras. There's festivals. Uh, We have running events, and people drink after those, and you know those start at like 8 in the morning, and then You cross the finish line, and if you want to go pop a beer, you can. It's very accepted. So in my 20s and 30s, I was definitely just in the crowd. It didn't look strange to anyone. But then as I became a mom and didn't get out as much as I did in my 20s and 30s, so I guess what I'm saying is in my mom role, I started recognizing this isn't normal.
0: Yeah. And, and um, you know, I think one of the most dangerous parts about alcohol is that it kills by the millimeter. And there's other drugs out there like meth or heroin that kill by the mile. It happens really quick. But talk to me about the progression for you. You mentioned in your 40s, it got worse. And, you know, was it something yeah. that it, it was it was getting worse and you were able to realize it? Because with me, it definitely got worse. But I was always like one lap behind my alcoholism. What was it like for you?
1: I just found that it was never enough. You know, the saying about one is too many and a thousand is never enough. That was true. I just, I couldn't wait till the end of the day so I could have a drink. And my focus began shifting more toward, God, One can have a drink, as opposed to just being present with my family. And two of my children were born with exceptionalities. They were both born deaf. And so they required more of me than, than a hearing child would. And I mean, now they're 16 and 17. So when things started getting bad for me, they were definitely well on their way educationally. It's just inside of me. I, I hated myself. I just absolutely didn't like myself at all. And alcohol seemed to be the easiest thing and most acceptable thing I could do to cope with me and my life. And, it just increased and continued to increase until the end.
0: now you mentioned you hated yourself, and I, I think that's the progression spiritually because I got to the point as well where I couldn't look at myself in the mirror, and that mm-hmm. was an indicator that I was absolutely spiritually broken and you know what was that like for you and when, when you felt that that loathing feeling for yourself?
1: It was horrible I didn't know that there was help available. I just accepted this is my life. And that's how it was with alcohol too. I finally came to the conclusion that I'm going to drink every day of my life. And this is as good as it's going to get. And as bad as it sucked, I kind of thought, well, you know, here it is. This is what I have and take it or leave it. And I just kind of resign myself to the fact that life was going to suck and I was in it.
0: <laughs> yeah. So when did this switch flip? When did you decide to quit drinking? Was it, was it like a bottom moment or were you sick and tired
1: of being sick and tired? I was definitely sick and tired of being sick and tired. What I just described about coming to terms with, I'm just going to drink every day. That was something that I had realized in, I think it was around March of 2014, it was Mardi Gras night and my family saw that I was slurring my speech and my daughters were like, Mom, are you drunk? <laughs> and I was like, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm not drunk," <thinking." laughs> and, and I was. Yeah. And so it was embarrassing. And then the next day I was like, okay, life sucks. Here I am. And then a couple of months after that, someone very close to me, went into rehab. And when he went to rehab, I I just wanted to do something to help, kind of to be supportive. And I thought, okay, while he's gone for these three months, I'm going to stop drinking because I can do that to be supportive of him and, and see what it feels like. Like, what's he going to be going through? I'm going to try to have that experience too. So I wasn't even looking to stop drinking I was just looking to be supportive of someone in my family who I love so much and it was so weird because with each passing day I couldn't believe I was not drinking and that's not to say I was sober emotionally but just the fact that I could avoid alcohol that way was pretty crazy and someone close to me also in this situation with rehab told me to go to Al-Anon just for help for myself because this person didn't realize I was an alcoholic. I didn't realize it. So I was going to Al Anon. So I was getting exposed to what the twelve steps were and, you know, what people look like when they're trying to recover. And that was kind of the beginning for me. I thought, Oh my gosh, you know, there might actually be some help out there and I maybe could change, like really change. So yeah, it was it was kind of an accident. But A welcomed accident.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So how did you do it? You, 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 did you, did you continue to go back to Al-Anon or AA?
1: Yeah, I kept going to Al-Anon. And then when my loved one moved to a different city to go to a sober living place, I went out to visit him and he invited me to an AA meeting. And of course I couldn't wait to go see what that was about. And I went and it was this huge group of sober, happy people. It was like, I remembered that night. I thought, I've never been around this many sober people who are this happy at one time. It blew my mind. And I participated in the meeting and listened. And when they started going through the meeting and they read how AA works, everything they said hit with me. And I thought, I want what you have and I guess I'm willing to do anything to get it. And after the meeting, I told the people I was with, I said, I I think I've been going to the wrong meeting. (laughs) And everything kind of changed. I went to bed that night and told God, if this is what you meant for me, you need to give me a sign because I didn't realize I'm actually an alcoholic. I, you know, all the writing on the wall was there, but Yeah. yeah. And then the next morning when I got up and had this, the whole little God moment happened for me. And I I said, Okay, I understand. and This is what I'm going to start doing. And since then, I've, I've been involved in AA and the 12 steps, I got a sponsor and life has changed. It's I can't believe I'm even sitting here talking to you saying this, because I really never thought it could happen to me. I just didn't think I was ever going to have a life that was joyous and and free and it's not perfect but the good days far outweigh the bad days and i don't have secrets anymore that's the most freeing thing is much more authentically me and i'm grateful for that
0: there's a couple things i want to touch up upon and First one is when you heard about there was an AA meeting and you said, "Of course, I want to go check that out." I think you're the only person I've ever talked with 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 that sort of uh, eagerness to go check out an AA meeting. So if you're if you're listening right now and you're like, "No, I don't want to go check out an AA meeting," um, I think I think Mary is kind of the anomaly on that. But that's awesome that you went there. And and also you you, you mentioned another thing that you participated and listened. Um, now, I don't know if you spoke at that meeting, but that's what participation looks like in, in, in a meeting, and especially in your first couple meetings. You, if you have trepidation to go, you don't have to do anything. Participating is simply listening. And that's almost the best to, you know, to not talk in the first couple of meetings is because you don't really have much to say. You, know, you just need to be a sponge right. and soak it up. Now, earlier you mentioned the, you said you were sober, but you weren't sober emotionally. Can you explain mm-hmm. more about that?
1: Yes, definitely. And just one quick thing about going to that meeting. I was fine to go because I didn't realize it was actually for me. You know, I was (laughs)
2: going to be be supportive. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was like, sure, I'll go. I'll sit with you.
0: (laughs) person taking you is like, Mary has no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Radio it in, boys. The plan's on track.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So, yeah. So, emotional... Sobriety for me has been getting rid of the secrets and working through the steps and and being willing to take advice and instruction from people who have already been there and done that. I was so miserable, I just didn 't think anyone else could match me in misery and you 're right for participation for me, it did mean to sit there and actively listen. i didn 't have anything to say I, I was too blown away by everyone. Telling my own story through their lives, it was just, it blew my mind because when there's a speaker in a meeting, you know, they say what they were like, what happened, and then what they're like afterwards. So to be exposed to that kind of hell and then that kind of hope all in the same meeting, it just blew my mind. So I wanted it. I wanted to be happy. And I was willing to listen to and do anything they said to do. And for me, that was working through the steps and and trying to remain teachable.
0: Yeah, there's something you mentioned that I want to touch up on. It's that you, you thought you were so miserable that nobody else would be as miserable as you. And that's a common thread in this podcast. And I've even done specific episodes on this. It's called Terminal Uniqueness. It's when you go into a meeting and you're like, you know what? Like, you know, no one is as bad as I am. Like, this is not going to work for me because I'm special and I'm unique which is just not the case. You know, Mary, I've, I've never heard a you know, story identical to yours about you know the Cadillac driving the boat around in palm trees and ditches, but we've all got stories that are pretty similar, believe it or not. And that's a dangerous thing when, if you're listening to this podcast and you shut it off halfway through, you can shut it off because my jokes suck, but don't shut it off because you think you're different than the people. We need to focus on the similarities and not the differences. And how important has that been for you?
1: Oh, it's been huge because one, one piece of advice I heard is to stay in the middle of the herd, which means get, you know, get in the middle of sobriety. If you're going to be serious about getting sober, be in the middle, do what people tell you and take their advice because they've been there. They know what works when you're on the outskirts and you're just, "Mm, I'm not sure. I I think I can do this on my own, barely putting a toe in, you know, to test out the waters. Chances are you're going to drink again. Mm -hmm. I, that's my belief. And so, yeah, I think you just have to be right up in there and and do what they say, especially people who the sponsors and everything, they, they know what they're doing.
0: They do. They do. I, I agree with what you said. And I've actually seen that exactly what you mentioned. Now, Mary, walk me through a day of your life in recovery. What does it look like?
1: Well, for me, I always begin my day praying on my knees, and I end my day that way, too. For me, God's my higher power, and I could not get through each day in sobriety without him, so I definitely pray and thank him. Thankfulness is a big thing. And I also ask them every morning to show me how I can be of service that day to other people. Meditation is huge for me. There's one on YouTube that I found. It's an 11-step guided meditation, and I also do a lot of personal development, which has helped me to deal with all those things that I was drinking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have now I have friends who are in the program who. I reach out to regularly, whereas before I was a huge isolator. But now it's so weird because if I'm having a bad day, I'll just send out a text or something to someone I trust and say, hey, today's sucking. Can we get together for coffee or something like that? And it always helps. What doesn't help me is to isolate. If I'm having a bad day, I'm like, yeah, I think I'll stay in bed. That's a recipe for disaster. It just gets worse after that. And I do listen to a lot of AA recordings. There's some audio books. And there's also just recovery things that I really like. Um Recovery Elevator is probably the only podcast I really listen to consistently these days. I think you do. Um, love it. I love it because you give um, a lot of facts at the beginning and then you get to real world stuff with interviews and I like that a lot. Another thing that I discovered that I really like, they're called, um, I had to write myself a note. I think it's the Joe and Charlie Mm tape. They are, let's see, I just want to be sure I told you the right thing. I think they're called Joe and Charlie. Yeah, you got the names
0: right. Those are fantastic. um,
1: Yeah, yeah. And I really, really like those. Those are like back to old school, and I like that. And then I also, of course, the big book and the 12 and 12 are two big ones for me, too. And I have just a load of daily devotionals. So if I just want to read a couple of short things, you know, I'll break out a couple of those and read those and be on my way.
0: Now, Mary, there's one more thing I want to circle the wagons on, and I don't know why I didn't do this previously. I I think a pelican flew by my window or something, and I got sidetracked. (laughs) But you mentioned stick with the herd, stick with the pack, just stay right in the middle. That is a huge value bomb that you dropped there, and that is the community. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, you are, if you're listening right now, I'm not telling you're not a genius. I'm not telling you, you're not special but just put those sentiments aside stick with the pack it's it's one of the best advice yeah. you know that I can give you that Mary can give you it is is definitely worth listening to and mary we have reached the rapid fire round actually there's one more question a couple more questions on my notepad that I forgot to ask um you know what okay. with 3 years of sobriety what's still on your bucket list
1: i want to continue to be of service and i'd really i like sharing my story i especially with the group I'm in, which is moms, you know, I think there's a lot of overconsumption, um, parentheses, alcoholism. with moms. <laughs> it's, it, you know, wine is so, is so acceptable and, you know, okay. A glass of wine's okay. A bottle probably is not. So yeah, I just, I want to share my hope and my experience and let people know that there's there's definitely hope out there just have to do the work
0: yeah absolutely and what have you learned most about yourself in recovery
1: I have learned that I am pretty okay and all the things that I thought made me so oh I can never get help that's just a lie I'm fine I'm just like every other person just trying to have a good life and doing the best I can and trying to be authentic about it I've I'm glad the secrets are all out, and I don't have to deal with that anymore.
0: Now, Mary, a lot of people who are listening are are struggling. They're, They're in the middle of it. They're in the thick of it. What are your thoughts on relapse?
1: For me, because I drank so much for so long, now that I have this piece, I really can only accept this one day of being sober. I can't plan on tomorrow, and future tripping is huge. Don't future trip. Think about the day you're in. As far as relapse goes, I think oftentimes relapse is part of recovery. And some people just aren't ready to get sober and every person has to get there on their own time. But if you feel like you might be ready, then move on that. And everybody has access to a computer these days. If you don't, the public library has them. Just go and start Googling, there's a ton of information out there. There's people you can get in touch with within 30 minutes, I guarantee it, who will be happy to meet with you and talk with you and, you know, get you on the right path so you can start working toward your own peace and happiness.
0: Perfect. And Mary, now we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready?
1: Yes, I'm ready.
0: All right, number 1. What was your worst memory from drinking, Mary?
1: Leaving that sleeping baby when I was 13 to go drink and drive when I should have been in a responsible manner. I was I just blew it.
0: Did you get paid for that babysitting night?
1: Nope.
0: <laughs> yeah, I probably wouldn't have paid you either. Sorry.
1: I got paid with glares, and and I'm sure they hollered at me, rightfully so. I was drunk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Kind of, not really at all. Okay, (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) Number two, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating, oh, I can't control my drinking?
1: Oh gosh, I was at a sweet 16 party for my stepdaughter, and when it was time to go home, I realized, I am drunk. I should not be driving, but I really want to go home, so I'll drive. So when I'm driving, I hit curb with my back tire, and it was hard. And I thought, oh, God, please don't let me get a flat tire, because if a cop drives by, it was a major highway, I he would have, I would have gotten arrested, I have no doubt. So I made it home safely, thankfully. And then the next morning, I had to do something. So when I went outside, my tire was flat. And I was just like, okay, that was bad. But even though I knew it was because of my drinking, I was just like, well, I us dodge that bullet. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't really, you know, it didn't bother me enough to do anything about it.
0: Well, just like ditches <laughs> and palm trees, curbs are everywhere, Mary. I wouldn't beat yourself up yeah. too much about that one. And next question, Mary, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward?
1: I am going to continue to go to 12 step meetings and continue to try to break the stigma. I think as long as we keep it quiet and for some people that works for me it doesn't work. I I like to let people know that there is a better way and and we can we can do this.
0: In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: Let's see. Oh, the best advice I ever received was to keep falling forward. You know, we don't do it perfectly every time, but as long as we're at least moving in the right direction, we, we will get there. And then the other thing is, everywhere I go, there I am.
2: <laughs> like,
1: I can't avoid me and what makes me me, so I better work to try, to try to like myself.
0: Yeah, that's kind of easier than 2 plus 2. Yeah, everywhere you go, yeah. there you are. I love it. <laughs> Never heard that. I like that a lot. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober?
1: I encourage you to keep moving forward. And if it's comfortable for you to talk about what you're going through, then do that. Find someone you can trust and just talk about what you're going through. I really believe in giving a voice to our pain. And when we're actively alcoholic, we are in a lot of pain. And when you start talking about it, at least that was my experience, it's like this weight just lifted. It just, it was amazing. I, I hope I can share that with other people.
0: I appreciate you sharing your story. It's helped me a lot. I've loved doing this interview so far. And then before we get to the customize, you might be an alcoholic gift line. <laughs> um, you have a blog. It's called southernrunningmom.wordpress.com. Tell us just uh, quickly about that
1: yeah that's something I started way back in 2009 when I was still an active alcoholic and so it was pretty sugar-coated back then and it has evolved over the past few years it's a lot more real life now I it's kind of like an online diary for me so I just share a lot of the experiences I go through I'm happy to continue to work on my sobriety not all of my relationships are are thriving because I am working on my sobriety some of them have they're just not the same I my marriage you know because it was always one where I was an alcoholic well for three years (laughs) I'm kind of this different person and that takes some getting used to I guess so yeah it's a pretty cool blog
0: nice and is there a contact form on that if someone would like to get in touch with you
1: you know I think there is I'm gonna go check
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) Okay. Well, now we have reached the end. And if you could give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line.
2: You
1: might be an alcoholic if you go to your computer and you Google, am I an alcoholic? And then you take the test and you just look for the, you know, one or two things that you can not attest to. Um I used to do that, and because I didn't work in an office, I was like, well, I don't drink at work, so I guess I'm good.
0: <laughs> Had you worked in an office, though, you definitely would have been drinking at the office.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, probably so, no Yeah. Doubt.
0: <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mary. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it.
0: Historically, millennials catch a lot of flack for being lazy, which has been rebuted time and time again, but this one is more specific towards millennial women. It turns out they do have an actual unprecedented talent, which is drinking. Historically, men have been known to drink more than women, sometimes up to 12 times more. Numerous studies have shown that the alcohol gap tends to be consistent across of historical and cultural differences, suggesting it may be one of very few universal gender differences. This means a new study from the journal BMJ Open is more than just an interesting read. It's a social first. The study conducted by researchers from Columbia University, my safety school, just kidding, and the University of South Wales in Australia revealed that among young adults, the alcohol gap has nearly closed between men and women. Compared to a century ago, when men were 2.2 times more likely than women to consume alcohol, men born in the late 1900s are only 1.1 times more likely to drink more than their female peers. The study explains that drinking has been closely tied with traditional gender roles. As the concept of masculinity is deconstructed and more women are working outside the home, the boys' club of boozing seems to be dissolving. So while it sounds like a backhanded compliment to laud our drinking equality, which it totally is, the closing alcohol gap could be indicative of a number of other more important social gaps closing simultaneously. Of course, for any positive implications, the study's not necessarily one to be celebrated. The gender ratio for alcohol intake ratio has changed, but so has the one for alcohol abuse. Men and women born in the 1900s have an essentially equal chance of having a drinking problem, whereas 100 years ago, men were three times more likely. So there we have it, with the current events of our times. And if your city did not make the drunken list, I'm 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 sure there's there's something wrong with the study. It's got to be the study, not your city. (laughs) So recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We gotta take the stairs back up. We can do this.